0: When have you experienced something so great, so astounding, that it called for an interpretation? It wasn't wasn't enough to just experience this, but it kind of rocks your world, so you have to interpret what you've just experienced. Perhaps it was like a sudden loss of a job. Perhaps it was a particular call of the Lord on you to go and do something somewhere perhaps it's a major life decision. Perhaps it's loss of a loved one. Maybe a catastrophic event that that rocks the, the nation or the entire world. A 9-11 kind of event. The point is, after experiencing these things, your, your life is not going to be the same. You are changed by this experience. And the change comes, and it's so great, this event is so great in your life, that you have to interpret what does it mean, and part of that interpretation may be reconciling or reorienting your life to what is that now, the new normal. Now, hopefully, in the few possibilities I gave you, in your own lives, you all have experienced something of that and had to contend with the new changes. Well, in this passage, as Luke is carrying us through the gospel along the road, uh, of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, we come to another defining scene on the road. Now, we've covered not long ago the Martha and Mary scene, but in that scene, what is it that gives Jesus the right to say one is better at sitting at the feet of Jesus and receiving? He, he then teaches on the Lord's Prayer, or, or he teaches the disciples to pray. He really teaches the disciples' prayer. But we know it as the Lord's Prayer. But what is it that gives Jesus the right teach how to pray of all the people that are in the world he's going to teach these people how to pray and then he's going to collect people into this band of, of of folks that are going to pull together to pray as he has just instructed what is it that gives him the right to proclaim such things what is interesting that this passage immediately follows those and it's in this passage it answers that very question what is it that gives him by what authority do you proclaim these things the works Of Jesus, these miracles must be interpreted, and then they call for a response. They call for an answer. Now, these these are these are these are things that we don't experience. They're things that we've read about. They're in the Gospels, so we're familiar in that respect. And so we can we tend to read and move move along. And and the miracle here is not what the time is spent on. So we kind of take these things, I think, for granted. It's a passage like this. That because this shocking thing that happened, and those witnessing it have to say, okay, there's something going on here that's greater than what my normal day shows me. So what do they do with this information? This is, this is what, it's, it's a passage like this that would have led C.S. Lewis to come up with, if he were to simplify it and narrow it down, either Jesus is Lord... Or he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. So in this passage, those are kinds of, these, these are your options. Is he wrong? Is he a liar? Is he doing this by the work of Satan? Or is he the Lord? question for us is how do you respond to God's mercy or the mercy of Jesus? First off, we see that uh, mercy is denied. So just in verse 14, let's look at it says now he was casting out a demon that was mute and there's there's the there's the whole description of the miracle but it goes on it says when the demon had gone out the mute man spoke and the people marveled now today if if you're not able to speak given our technology the fact that most everybody knows reading and writing and they can do this kind of thing so from our perspective it may we may underestimate how afflicted this man was in his day and time um, I, I i think I think it would be horrible not to be able to speak today, but I think in a in a uh, among a people in a culture where many people did not they were not able to read or write then even if you found something to write with, how would that go? How would you write to to get your message across and then who could read it so this I think this man was extremely afflicted, which the very brief sentence, now uh, he was casting out a demon that was mute. That's all the information we have, and it's easy for us to underestimate how afflicted this man was. At Mops, as I watch the one-year-olds, we we give for snacks. We do uh, goldfish, and om- almost all those little kids know, I want more. They'll know enough sign language. I don't know what all sign language they know, but they know enough to communicate, I want more. I think, I think that... Uh, did I get that close? I'm, I'm, I'm just watching the little kids, and then I don't know what I'm really doing. But they seem to know, and it seems very effective. But I'm thinking that even these one-year-olds would be in a position to better communicate than this man. I think this, I think this man was, was really um, struggling. So I don't even know if, if he could have, uh, if it, at one point he was able to speak, and now he's not. I don't know how that worked. But it says, Jesus comes along which this crowd may not have known who Jesus was, but they would have known the mute man. So It's, 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 not, a, um, it's not somebody planted as you know, maybe a uh, traveling TV preacher kind of guy. This, this guy is real to the community. The community knows him, whether they know Jesus or not. And Jesus comes along and he casts out that spirit, and then the man is set free, and he's able to experience something that he hadn't experienced. And perhaps for the first time, he's able to speak. He's actually, in this, in this physical representation, in this story, he's now living into the person he was made to be. He has come to Jesus, and Jesus has made him whole. This is the story of the gospel. When one is renewed, they are restored to live as they were created in the image of God to be, in that right relationship with God the Father. Now, no doubt this man was singing the praises of, of Jesus. And Luke says, the people marveled. The people were amazed. But have you ever been around a naysayer? You know, you know who they are. You say something positive, they have to say something negative. They can't even just be quiet because they're such a naysayer. So the more positive thing you say, the more negative thing they say. And it's such that maybe they suck the life out of you simply by being around them. These are the kinds of people Jesus is up against in this story. Except they're worse than just naysayers. They go to the extreme on the negative. Verse 15, it says, But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others detest him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Now, Beelzebul uh, is a Greek transliteration of a Canaanite god, meaning Baal the prince. It's an alternative name for Satan. So they're, they are witnessing the miracle that Jesus performs, and they're saying he's doing this by the power of Satan. So they're, they're really worse than just naysayers. They knew that he had a divine power because they had witnessed it. They knew this wasn't normal for man to be able to do. But the question was, is this divine power from God or is this divine power from Satan? This is the thing they're grappling with. And of course, the accusers in the crowd are saying and attributing his efforts to Satan. There is something that this sounds extremely severe they were talked they were told in scripture they were told that there were evil evil ones among them who could do such things so for them to have a a shred of doubt is not a bad thing for them to question it is not a bad thing now i think that i think that they were not promoters of jesus at all and they were totally against him is why they landed on satan but there's still lesson in this for us that um Sometimes, So we're, we're told to judge a, a, a tree by the fruit it bears. And so sometimes we look at ministries or people, and, and those would be people well-known typically, and those people get to be better known, and it's kind of like they're some sort of a star or a, a, a celebrity among religious people. And they do these miracles. I think it would do us well to question whether or not the fruit is coming from, is it Satan or is it God? And not just assume or be willing to throw in the towel, if we think this is odd, if something's striking us that, okay, I'm not sure that this is all right. I think we need to be pecking and saying, and, may, and maybe not out loud to them, but at least in our heads saying, is this from God or is this from Satan? And at least be able to test the spirits because the Bible tells us we should do this. But these folks, they just weren't merely discerning people. They were against him. They were doubting the mercy of God. They They doubted His display of great mercy in freeing this man. I think there's the question for us, is do we doubt God's mercy? Do you want to limit God's mercy and grace to only things that make sense to you? Do you struggle, say, with a brokenness or a deep-seated sin that you think is too much for God to heal? Have you given up on relationships because you really don't believe God is merciful enough to restore those things. That's what he does. He restores what is broken. In what ways do you doubt God's mercy? So if you, if you followed for my last few questions, I started with, do we doubt God's mercy for ourselves? Now I've moved to, how do you doubt God's mercy? Because I feel confident that we do. This is what this passage is speaking to how do we how do you personally doubt god's mercy do we are we naysayers or are we more like the people in the last part um that's 16 while others test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven is, do you doubt god's mercy in common grace so the fact that we do have food to eat, we do have air to breathe. We, He has provided for us a, ch- a church family. He has provided for us the Word of God. He has provided for us those things that we do need. But do we take those things for granted because it's his goodness in the ordinary, and then instead we are looking for a sign from heaven? Next, we see uh, merciful reasoning. Jesus mercifully reasoned with these people. Verse 17 says, but he... Knowing their hearts, said to them, "Every kingdom, kingdom divided against itself, is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by beelzebub So he, he wants to clarify for them what they have witnessed. So he helps them interpret what's going on. He wants them to make sense of what they've seen, of what they've witnessed. And so he asks." How could Satan asked out Satan? He contrasts the power of man versus the power of God. And then he contrasts the kingdoms. And and it's and it's just a, a, a natural reasoning that if Satan is accomplishing what he wants with this man where this this Powerful spirit has possessed this man and held his tongue for perhaps most or all of his life. And why is it that Satan would cast him out? Satan's job is to kill, steal, and destroy. He's accomplishing that. Satan's kingdom will not grow if Satan is casting out his own demons. This is his point. So then he illustrates that superior power that he has over Satan by contrasting what the sons of man are able to do. And And then he says that he casts out demons by the finger of God. So this is that revelation of who he is, that revelation of his divinity. It's continuing as we walk through Luke. We're seeing more and more of his proclamation of who he is. So he says, I've cast out these demons by the finger of God, and therefore the kingdom has come upon you. So this is not a thing that brings comfort. This is a thing that brings concern because the kingdom is bringing judgment. They cannot escape it. This is the point where Jesus' display of his power demands a response. How do you respond to the power of Jesus? 21 says, When a stra- strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor, in which he trusted, and divides, his, and divides his spoil. So Jesus continues this story to explain the kingdom of God is greater than that of the kingdom of Satan, greater than the kingdom of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And Jesus himself will strip the evil one of his armor on the cross. And for those who belong to Jesus, they will no longer be under the dominion or rule of Satan. They will be under the shadow of the wings of God. They will be in Christ Jesus himself. This kingdom that Jesus is speaking about that has come upon them is being ushered in by the king himself. And he's going to deliver a defeating blow upon the cross as he carries our sins upon his back. Jesus reveals his divinity by his works. Those in the crowd had to reconcile their life to this new revelation. When we hear the good news, we have to reconcile our life to this new revelation. There is a God and we're not, that, we're, we're not him. All right, so, okay, if there's really a God, then what does that mean for us? And, and when the kingdom is broken into our world we have to reconcile our life to this new revelation. You can't simply dismiss his heavenly divinity because you don't want to notice it. It's there, and he's impressing you with it. Everyone had to answer this question. By what authority did Jesus cast out the demons? So he goes into some merciful warnings. For some, they may not have gone as far as to call Jesus Beelzebub or call him Satan, but... Those others who were looking for the sign, they were looking for neutral ground. Now, there are a lot of people who we would run into on a daily basis who are looking for neutral ground. But Jesus dispels this myth that there is such a thing as neutral ground. 23 says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There is simply no neutral ground. This is how life-changing this disclosure of Jesus was and is. He calls for a decision. Once the truth has been disclosed about who he is, one must decide whether or not to follow. One must decide whether or not they're going to come off the throne of their own rule, of their own life, out of their own heart, and allow him to reign and rule in their life. If you're not with him, you're against him. If you're not gathering for him, you're scattering. It's just as true today as it was then. You're either for Jesus or you're standing against him. 24 goes into an illustration of why this is important to have a stand, why, there's no, why there is no middle ground. He illustrates this with this story. 24 says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person and it passes through waterless places seeking rest and it finds none, it says, I will return to my home which, from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Now this is a, this, what an what an interesting illustration. So if there is no middle ground, if there's that story of, you know, the guy sitting on the fence and you figure out, oh, the, it's the... Uh, the devil owns the fence as well. You're either with the devil or you're with Jesus. He's sitting on the fence. The devil owns the fence. So it's it's one or the other. There is no fence sitting. There is no neutral ground. It's one or the other. This word, this illustration for us today is timely. Um, in our postmodern world, everything revolves around us. We are to look to ourselves within to find what is true for us because what's true for you may not be true for me this is what this is the world in which we live Jesus is saying that's not so But if you're looking to within to, to yourself if you're looking from within yourself find your answers and say you say okay it's time for me to clean house I need to get morally right about this thing I am convicted And I need to get morally right. So I'm going to sweep house. I'm going to clean. I'm going to put things in place. So in my heart, I'm going to say, I'm going to quit this. I'm going to start that. And you do this by your own efforts. What he's saying is this will fail. Jesus is saying that if a person cleanses the house by purging evil in and by his own efforts, then the self-reformation is going to collapse. This personal reformation will only be temporary. This vacuum that is left will be filled with something. If the Spirit of God did not regenerate the person, then purge the sin and the evil, the self-saving efforts will collapse as the person is empty and open to any perversion or sin that will take up residence in him or her. Now, I find this to be a startling kind of thing. There is no middle ground. Reformation is an empty Practice, leaving one open to the demonic community, unless one is regenerated and filled by the Holy Spirit. We have discussed in different places before the different kinds of ways that we in our community have participated in helping others. And we want to help people with this, we want to help people with that, but m- many times we want to help. Even the church wants to help without the proclamation of the gospel because they're not ready for that. This is, this, this is what I've heard. This seems problematic in light of this passage. We can help somebody in poverty set goals, reorient their life toward being more like a middle-class person. And perhaps their life is a little easier and better for it what this is saying is if it's only your self-efforts, if we're not introduced to Jesus, if you're not regenerated by the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit's not dwelling in you, these things that you've purged yourself from, if you've you've gotten morally right on several of these other accounts, but it's not with Jesus, and it's not by the act and uh, uh, and the volitional will of the Holy Spirit in you, you're open to being filled with all kinds of things. A scary thought. So when a goofy guy like me stands in front of you, who may oppose highly educated people who have been studying in their fields for years upon years upon years, and old Jim comes in and says, your greatest problem is spiritual. If it's addiction, if it's this, if it's this, if it's this, your greatest problem is spiritual. That's why we all, I don't care care what the affliction is, and we're fools to think that we're not afflicted. Genesis 3 tells us we all will be. We all are. We like to then separate people from the different brokenness that the fall of man brings, and then address those things in a very scientific and specific way. And I have no real problem with that, as long as we don't set aside this truth that your main problem is spiritual. Your main problem is how you relate to God who made you. If you were created in his image, but your image is tarnished, then how do you shine your image up? You don't. It's by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit working in you. How does that happen? Well, somebody has to be under the word of God. And then the Holy Spirit works in that to regenerate those people and bring them to Jesus. This is the new thing that we read about in Isaiah. This is the new thing he's doing. And then he's going to gather his people So they will sing his praises, what Isaiah said. I think this is beautiful. It does that because the Holy Spirit's the one who is reforming them, transforming them into his likeness, regenerating them and remaking them into that original likeness in which he created them. Like the mute man being able to speak. He's living into who he was created to be. That's what happens when broken people come to Jesus, receive the gospel and are renewed by the Holy Spirit. Whatever the ailment is... The first and foremost problem we all have is spiritual. That's the biblical Christian worldview, yet you'll find many Christians who say something different than that. This is the problem. And and I, I can handle the argument of, okay, Jim, you're saying then the poor man's freezing on the street who has nothing to eat, you're telling me just to proclaim the gospel. No, don't hear me. Don't hear me wrong and don't twist the words. No, yes, we should care for the whole person. But caring for the whole person doesn't mean we clothe the man and we feed him and don't share the gospel. What a terrible thing to do. Is that loving him into hell? It may be the, that's that's the purpose of the church. The church is not to and, and and people will tell us we're supposed to go out there and we do go out there. But the other part of that is we bring people into the church. They find community that they never had. They are accepted, received, and 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 they are uh, they see a model of what it means to follow Jesus. Okay, that's that's the holistic way to minister to somebody. So this is that example. So if if we don't if we're going to fix problems on our own but not by the gospel, then we're leaving ourselves, we're leaving others open for this indwelling of evil spirits. Because there is no neutral ground. There's the picture. So then, everybody's not against Jesus. Somebody in this crowd's for Jesus. So 27 says, as, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, 28, but he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God keep it. Now, Jesus knew that his mother Mary was blessed, blessed among women. Mary knew that she was blessed among women. So he's not saying she was not blessed. He is not uh, against that at all. He knew that she was blessed, but he's saying that we could all be blessed in two steps, by hearing the word of God and obeying it or keeping it. So we come wanting to spend time with him into the scriptures we come to hear the preaching so that we're preparing ourselves to come and hear and listen intently in this case we might be reading in and through luke because we know you may not know the specific section we're going to cover but you know we're still going to be in luke we started luke a year ago and we're still in luke we're going to be in luke for a while Till it's finished. So a pre- way to prepare your hearts would be to have some time. Read through Luke. And as you come, you listen. You listen intently. And then as we try to understand what the Lord has in store for us through His Word, we apply it to our own life. Whether, whether the preacher does well or not, you hear and you apply to your own <coughs> life. And that may need some flushing out with your spouse or with a friend or with me. I feel like the Lord's nudging me in this direction. Perhaps that's true. Let's talk about that. This applying it to our life is, is key. So then we are practicing the word. We're obeying the word. We're hearing and obeying. So Jesus heals and then he's heckled and he's doubted. And his authority is attributed to Satan. So Jesus mercifully reasons with the crowd and mercifully warns them about interpreting their current situation when this woman who is definitely with Jesus, not against him, proclaims, blessed is the womb who bore you. Jesus responds and says, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it, which he has been delivering the word of God among these scoffers all this time. So it's, it's quite the catch for those who were not listening, for those who were heckling, for those who were doubting his mercy. So may it be said of you who are with Jesus, that you are part of the gathering for Jesus because you have heard his word and you've kept it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray.